Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of June 2020 and this is episode 167. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Professor Alison Fell, Professor of French and Cultural History at the University of Leeds, about her recent book on women as veterans in post-war France and Britain. Alison's book examines the cultural and social identity some women adopted or were given as war veterans in the 1920s, and how this was received by the post-war societies in France and Britain. Her book is published by Cambridge University Press. A paperback version is now available, and this can be purchased with a 20% discount from the CUP website. See the cover notes of this podcast for the relevant details and the necessary code to get the reduction. This offer ends on the 8th of February 2021. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hi, yes. So I am um, a professor of French cultural history at the University of Leeds. Um, I've been interested in the First World War for over 20 years. I think one of the experiences that first drew me in was reading Vera Britton's memoir, who I actually quote from in my book. I think I was about 19 or 20 when I read Testament of Youth for the first time. And it really chimed with me, I think partly because it's about escaping from a dull backwater to university as much as the First World War parts of the uh, memoir. But um, I got really fascinated. And I do also remember having long conversations with my grandmother, um, who was a farmer's wife and whose father died when she was very young from Spanish influenza. I think, you know, that's my kind of family history, which is not perhaps a history of somebody who was killed in the First World War who was a close male relative, but really I've always been quite interested in sort of the people at home and and women's experiences. So to start as an introduction, could you tell us about your book and what it is about and also why did you think it was necessary to write it? So my book is about French and British women who were active during the war, really what happened to them in the 1920s and how some of them refer to and use their war experiences in the 1920s for different reasons. So the reason there are two perhaps reasons why I felt it was a book that um, needed to be written, where there's a gap, if you like, in the historiography. So the first is comparing France and Britain. So there has been some comparative history between France and Britain um, around women, but there's still really a tendency to focus on individual nations rather than to think comparatively. And British women are much more high profile than French women. So, you know, British women like Vera Britain are very well known. So part of my research journey was to find out what French women had written about and thought about, what they wrote about in their diaries and memoirs, um, and see how it was the same and different from Britain. So that's the first thing, is comparing those two nations. The other reason I think that it was a book that needed to be written is it's because it's about the impact of the war afterwards. So a lot of histories of the war stop in 1918, whereas really that's my starting point. 
And so can you start by telling us about the women who feature in your study about their socioeconomic background, their class and what they had done during the war? I look at a really wide range of French and British women um, and their experiences. So um, although my book is really about the impact of the war on women's lives, I'm not looking at the bigger macro sort of top down picture. So a lot of studies have looked at things like did the war mean that women got the vote, for example, after the war? Whereas I'm more in, interested in, in it's quite in harder to answer questions about how women's experience influenced their, the way they saw themselves, their self-confidence, the different routes they took through life after the war. So I've had to use different sorts of case studies and different kinds of primary sources to find out about them. So I look at a really wide range of women, um, women who were they're all active in the war. They, do, they would probably describe themselves as being on a form of active service, but they did lots of different things. So some of them worked in factories, some of them were nurses, some of them were spies or worked for resistance movements in occupied France and Belgium, and some of them were journalists, some of them were charity workers. So they, because they did lots of different things, they also came from a lot of different backgrounds. So some of them were wealthy, independently wealthy women, and some of them came from really very working class backgrounds and that was deliberate I really wanted to look at a range of different backgrounds. Now your book looks at how women define themselves as veterans but looking at the definition of veteran in um, during and after the Great War in Britain and France what way in what ways was this defined and in what ways did women adopt this identity or were labelled as such in the post-war Britain and France? Well I hesitated about using the term veteran to describe women because the strict definition of veteran would be somebody who was in the armed services and that would apply to no French women at all, because unlike in Britain, they didn't have an auxiliary service that was founded in the war, like the, the WAX Women's Army Auxiliary Service in Britain. So veterans are a term that I define really broadly as somebody who was on active service. And I think really it's the kind of idea of what being a veteran meant that I wanted to use to apply to a different range of women. I also talk quite a lot about the term um, war generation, um, which in French is often called the génération du feu, or the generation who were under fire. And uh, this is a concept that is really important in the uh, years following the end of the war. You know, this idea of generations of those who'd been close to the action, who'd participated in the war, and those who were sort of at home. And although sometimes the dividing line between those two groups of people is seen as men and women, actually, what I would argue is that there are other dividing lines, uh, one of age, um, but also one of one of role. So that's why I thought the concept of being a veteran was really important, because there are a whole load of questions being asked in both France and Britain after the war about what people did, whether they sacrificed or not, were they on, did they serve or not? Um, do they therefore deserve special treatment in the years following the war? And how did women adopt this identity and what sort of form did this take? Well, I talk about women who others gave the identity to and then women who sort of adopted it for themselves. So there are groups of women who were seen as veterans as a way of giving their war service kind of recognition and credibility. So that was true for some of the women who died in the war. Um, for example, nurses died in the war, often by contracting diseases from the patients they were treating, um, which is very relevant at the, at the moment. Um, but there were some women who were also 
uh, killed under shell fire when they were in um, casualty clearing stations. So often in the way that those women were discussed and remembered and commemorated um, in uh, in the post-war years, describes them as veterans and, and uses the same kind of language that was used to, descri to describe servicemen who were killed in the war. But there were other women who took on the label of veteran because they wanted to use their war service for different reasons, sometimes for sort of professional reasons, uh, to get on for sort of social mobility, perhaps to publicise some memoirs or as a way of trying to gain um, a particular uh, career or a, a sort of post in public life. And they might do that by wearing medals, um, by um, talking about what they did, um, by using photographs of themselves dressed in a uniform. Obviously, the wearing of uniform was a very important marker, and it was the, the women who wore all sorts of different sorts of uniforms. And this was the kind of thing that I started noticing. Um, and uh, so they'd often sort of define themselves as a ward veteran um, in the 20s, so that they kind of were put in that bracket by their audiences or whoever they were they were trying to appeal to. So what was the motivation of women to adopt the, the identity of a veteran? I tend to talk about women who define themselves as veterans for different reasons. And I would say, whereas some of them did it for reason, professional reasons, there were also sort of private and personal reasons for people to do it. If you like, psychological needs to see themselves as veterans. So it was part of their identity as who they are. Um, some people, some women, for example, who were quite traumatised by their war experiences, who we might say suffered from a, a form of shell shock, however that's defined, for particularly nurses or those who were working very close to the front line. So sometimes being part of that war generation was a psychological need to be with people who understood as well as but I'm saying sort of women using it to, to get on in life. After the war, there was a massive growth in, in regimental organisations or comrades associations and pressure groups to lobby for veterans to commemorate, socialise and campaign for their rights and benefits. Did female veterans adopt the same type of organisations and form collectives in a similar way? Yes. So I discovered a lot of different organisations, um, either women-only organisations or some organisations that allowed, some sort of male-run organisations that allowed women to join. So although there were fewer in number because there were fewer women on a form of active service during the war, the veteran movement or the organised the organized veteran movement with associations, which was particularly strong in France, actually. So there were more examples in France than Britain. Um, but it was it was really important in the 1920s. So there were a number of nurses organisations, especially in France, the British um, Armed Service Auxiliary um, Services, Women's Auxiliary Services all had um, uh, associations that were very active in the 1920s as well and they formed they performed very similar functions for women as they did for men so they're kind of taking part in commemorative activity and parade lobbying for pension rights for um, some of the privileges that the post-war legislation um, achieved for veterans and also sort of mutual support and the kind of social activities all of those functions were the same for women, for women as well. And a subsidiary question to that is, were they generally formed by women's own sort of voluntary efforts or were they sort of formed by statutory or wider um, societal movements? 
It was mostly women's voluntary efforts. They used structures and legislation um, in order to give their organisations sort of legal status and in order to lobby effectively for change. So the women's, uh, the French war nurse associations, and there was also, I looked at, for example, a French ex-female prisoner of war association, um, they joined the broader sort of umbrella veteran organisations um, because it was a lot more effective. Um, so one of the things the nurses, for example, did was to try and make sure that they had the same pension rights as French combatants because originally they had some of the privileges but not all of the privileges. If you were, for example, a, a nurse who was sick and unable to uh, work after the war. So they did this really by joining these larger organisations, but they were spontaneously organised by individuals and then grew after the war. And how did British and French societies react to women um, adopting these roles or being portrayed as veterans? It was, it was more positive than I had imagined before I started doing the research. So, you know, women had a mixed reception during the war when they were on active service. So it wasn't a kind of a straightforward picture. So some women, for example, who were wearing uniforms were criticised. There was a lot of fear and suspicion about women joining the armed services, for example. There was also um, quite a lot of criticism levied at working class women who were active in the war because it was they were seen to be morally suspect, earning too much money, also perhaps neglecting their households and children. So there was quite a lot of potential criticism. But on the other hand, there was a lot of very positive um, reception of what was seen as women's exceptional efforts in a time of national emergency. So during the war, there was this sort of mixed picture. And the same was true after the war. So some forms of war service continued to have a lot of public acclaim, sort of high social prestige, and certainly the image of the nurse really benefited from their high profile in the war and all everything that they achieved and their vital role in caring for sick and wounded men was really recognised. And again, this slightly reminds me of what we're going through today, actually, in terms of uh, the importance of health workers in times of national emergency and crisis. So I think for nurses, for example, they benefited from the kind of improved public image in the post-war years. But some other women struggled and weren't really accepted and their war service was either ignored or disapproved of after the war. And it was usually women who were seen to have stepped too far out of their traditional role. So I looked particularly at, there was a handful of women, for example, who had active combat roles, very few, but some of them did. They tended not to be approved of. Um, any women who were seen as sort of usurping male roles or being a little bit morally suspect. Um, so spies, for example, women who worked for either the British intelligence services in France or Belgium, there were quite a lot of them, and they were doing all sorts of things, you know, train watching, or as, as well as sort of active agents or running escape networks like Edith Cavill. They, sometimes, their image was always a little bit suspect, you know, um, spies could, it could be Matahari, you know, kind of prostitute spies. So um, I think that the range of activities that women carried out on a form of active service, had different responses, and that continued in the post-war years. 
because I always thought there was that there was a sort of fear that you know um, 1918 would reset to 1914 and that gender roles would go back and and you know everybody would be would get on with their lives as they did in 1914 before the war happened and you're saying in many ways that that happened but also it didn't happen. I think that's it I think that there was a certain cohort of women who tended to be target of criticism so women's fashion is, a, is something that was discussed a lot for example in the press and there was a kind of general um, feeling that women used to look like women before the war with their corsets and long hair and then after the war they all started looking like bean poles and cutting their hair short and were kind of turning into men although it wasn't very easy for some of those curvy women you know to look like a flapper in the 1920s that's when diet started um, but um, I think that so that was the kind of thing that sometimes if you look at wartime newspapers it looks like you know, women are having a, a, a given a hard time. But just like now, there was a, there were whole categories of women who were exempt from those sorts of criticisms. So nobody was looking at nurses and saying that, you know, it was kind of, so I think one of the things I would argue generally about working on women in the war is that women tend to be lumped together, you know, in, in a way that men aren't. And so there would be certain groups of women that, that, that were, gen, that were criticised and the idea was, you know, we need to, they need to go back and start being proper mothers and housewives again. But there were whole categories of women whose service was recognised and who weren't subject to those sorts of criticisms. Which leads me to my penultimate question in which groups of women were, quotes, more successful than others at being accepted as veterans? And was there any sort of difference between England and France or sorry, Britain and France? Yes. So as I've said, I think that some women whose roles were seen as more sort of feminine and, and acceptable like nurses they generally had an easier time after the war in terms of their reputation and being accepted I wrote one of my chapters about women who'd been involved in industrial action during the war so obviously um, in uh, war factories the workforce was feminized during the war as, as the men were uh, mobilized and that meant that women for the first time became Sort of had more leadership positions in terms of industrial relations and um, union membership tripled in the war and it meant you know there were some sort of women who ended up having more of a political career in that way and they had been important in the way that they'd led to improvements for women war workers in munitions factories and other factories but looking at some of those female leaders in the 20s they tend not to talk about their war years they tend not to focus on their even though they had done amazing sort of things, if you like, in, in, because they were always subjective to suspicion of being sort of not acting for the national interest, of being potentially revolutionary or anti-British, you know, having foreign influence. So um, there are some women who sort of didn't really use the war um, on, and their war years um, as a form of service once the war was was over. There was definitely a difference between France and Britain as well. Um, I mean, you know, British women did get, um, or women over 30 got the vote in 1918, and then in 1928, or women got the vote. Um, then in France, that didn't happen, even though it was quite close. There are lots of complicated reasons for this, but it does show a sort of different context that women were operating in. I mean, I find it interesting that women were actually doing quite similar roles for the French army as the British women were. So they were working in clerical roles in kind of cleaning and catering and all those sorts of roles that they took on for both the French and the British army. But the French women weren't doing it in uniforms. 
you know they weren't called a corps they were they were doing it as civilian administrators or um cooks or waitresses so i that says something about the differences between the two nations that it just wasn't acceptable for women to be in those roles in france so i think it does it does show certain differences between the contexts i think but i was just wondering about the portrayal of women in ireland in terms of their role in the, in the war of independence and the, in the civil war that followed that which was technically still part of britain until 1923 and how they were perceived um in their gender roles you know in stark contrast to britain and i know that's probably not directly part of your study but i thought it was interesting it's a really interesting question and i think that ireland actually provides i mean i, I don't write about it in my book no. Um, but I, I should have done perhaps because it's a really interesting contrast because you have women who are both, you know, um, working, for example, as nurses. I mean, quite a lot of the military nurses were of Irish origin. You have um, sort of women, then um, Republican women working as sort of uh, in combat roles or in the equivalent of combat roles. And there's a whole sort of interesting question about the, their rights to a pension. Which So I think if you think of the First World War as a longer war, you know, take John Horne's approach, it doesn't end in 1918, then the question of women in Ireland doesn't follow quite the same trajectory because the same questions are being asked in the, in the Civil War when there's still, you know, war going on about where women's role ends um, in terms of civilian or combatant you know to what what does being on active service mean for different sorts of women so Ireland's a fascinating example I did look a little bit very briefly in my book at places like Russia and Eastern Europe where women did have an active combat role um, and what that meant in terms of the way that women's activities were perceived but there's more similarities than you think because actually really across all of those examples including Russia and Ireland um, in a time of national emergency during this period, women are allowed to usurp other roles. You know, women, it's acceptable for women to take on, say, a, a kind of more of a frontline type role. But then when the national emergency is over, then it becomes less acceptable to do so. You know, so, so there's sort of the same patterns um, emerge, even though the contexts are different. And finally, Alison, where can people get your book and learn more about the University of Leeds and your department? <laughs> so you can Google me, probably the, the easiest way. So um, my book has actually just come out in paperback um, with Cambridge University Press. So uh, it is a bit more affordable now. So that's on Amazon. I ran a project right throughout the centenary called Legacies of War. So if people Google Legacies of War at the University of Leeds, we still have our website with all its resources, including lots of information about Yorkshire and the war and lots of community heritage projects about the First World War. So people might find that quite interesting as well. Alison, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.